This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me in the studio today is none other than Dr. Mark Donohoe. So welcome, Mark. Welcome to me. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, before we get on to our main topics of the day, there's a couple of late-breaking articles in the journal Hepatology, which I just briefly want to cover because they're very exciting. The first one is by the author Zhao, or X-I-A-O, initial Q, who is from the National Cancer Institute in Beth Cedar. And it's published in the Hepatology Journal, October 2014. And it's looking at old data from the NHANES studies, uh, so 1999 to 2010. But what it shows is something very exciting. Inverse associations of total and decaffeinated coffee with liver enzyme levels in those people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, this is really exciting, Mark. It is, isn't it? And it looks like the emphasis is no longer just on the caffeine. So taking the emphasis off the caffeine, caffeine is a cytochrome P enzyme-inducing agent, and so lots of work was done on just adding the caffeine and the caffeine being the agent that would induce certain enzymes. But clearly there's something more to coffee. If the decaf is doing it and it looks epidemiologically as though the benefits of those three cups a day, whether caffeinated or uncaffeinated, are having a similar effect on enzyme reduction, then you'd have to say there's something. And you put your money on the polyphenolics, you'd be putting your money on different types of molecules to the caffeine being the critical agents there. We don't know yet. I mean, when, that's the problem with epidemiological studies. Yeah. You can observe what happened. You can say what the outcomes were. But now we've got to go backwards and say, what is it? You know, what is it about decaffeinated? And kind of unravel that, un- unpack that story a little bit. It's going to be a very exciting time to find out what is it th- within these beans. I think it's really exciting with, uh, in combination with the newer research that's coming out um, on coffee, not caffeine per se. Yeah. Um, because we tend to oversimplify certain things, as you know. We love active ingredients, (laughs) don't we? But I I think just think it's really interesting. And what also interests me is that this was 30,000-odd individuals. So you're going to get a wide variety of coffee consumption, not just uh, caffeinated and decaffeinated, but also those people that take milk or no milk, those people that take high sugar consumption versus no sugar consumption. That's true. This is really interesting stuff. The fact you can see a signal in there, and I mean, that's where this research is really exciting, to be able to see the signal, to have the thought to say, what about decaf versus caffeinated, Mm. go back in time, what were the outcomes of those, what happened with NAFLD and what happened with uh, the liver's function Mm. or indirect markers of function. I I, I put a pause on it one way. What they've measured is... AST, ALT, alkaline phosphatase, these are markers of function and the fact that they are lowering is taken to be improvement of the liver. You have to go that one extra step in a prospective trial now and say, let's see whether the liver itself gets better or was it just the markers? You can't go back and do liver ultrasounds in yeah. time, but you do have the blood test results. Mm-hmm. So where this where this really is exciting is here's a new level, a new path to follow. Mm. Is there something about coffee not related to caffeine, which is protective of the liver, which gives those enzymes a chance to settle back down to normal? And the kind of interim advice would be, well, at least you can say that coffee at around that three cups a day is going to do no harm. And if it makes an impact in the way that it looks as though it's making an impact, there may be quite a good benefit. Here's the other problem. Waiting for trials to be done prospectively is going to be bloody years before we can talk about this. So 
there is a practical answer here. People drink coffee. They have done so relatively safely. We've got more evidence of the upside of coffee. People know the downside. Some people can't metabolise it and they have a coffee at midday and they're still shaky in the evening. So it, this study actually makes mention of those other enzymes that clear the caffeine out of the system. But if you can rely on the decaf as having the same kind of protective effects, then that provides practical advice to people. You don't need to have the caffeine in order to get the benefits. Uh, one other very interesting study that's come out, and it was in the same journal while I was looking for this trial, mm. uh, f forgive me, for this review. Uh, this is the results of the Welcome study, um, which is a different study. Uh, the author here is Scorletti, S-C-O-R-L-E-T-T-I, initial E. And this is effects of purified EPA and DHA in, again, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Interesting results again, because it sort of showed one improvement, but not in another. Can you comment? Yeah, uh, again, this is one that I really should go into and have a look at the details. But it, what this one seems to be showing is that when you raise the erythrocyte DHA levels, so, so we know, you know the EPA, DHA, the long-chain omega-3 fats that we find in, uh, in these supplements, they make their way into the red cells. As red blood cells are manufactured, these make their way, and the measurable outcome is erythrocyte DHA and erythrocyte EPA. And what they seem to have shown is that when the DHA, the fats in the cell wall go up of the erythrocytes, the fats in the liver, the fatty changes in the liver observably diminish. Now, that does not mean that you can go from cirrhosis or fibrosis of the liver to have an improved outcome of the liver. It may mean that you are stopping progression. Yeah. But since we all regard fatty liver changes as the thing which is going to create a bit of a crisis with liver transplantation and with type 2 diabetes, the fact that you can get the EPA DHA up, get the DHA into the erythrocytes and see the liver recover, that's fabulous news. Mm. That does give people option two. You know, one is you go for your coffee or your decaf to do one part of the job of diminishing the load on liver enzymes. The other one is you get the fat out of the liver, oddly, by adding fats back, but fats of the right type, fats of the long chain EPA DHA omega-3 type. Very interesting studies and results that are coming out of it this is, or information. Don't we live in fascinating times Absolutely. that, you know, fats ain't fats and coffee ain't coffee and the good and the bad. We, we have to learn subtlety in mm. this. Biology is full of subtlety and medicine is full of kind of black and white answers. And what we are, are learning from this is there's hardly anything in nature that doesn't have a really useful use in mm. the body. Mm. And if we get used to that idea of having the whole coffee and having the fish and having the, having the supplements which give us life-giving and, he life and healthy outcomes, it percolates through to every organ, not just the liver. So thanks for that comment, Mark. Now let's get on to our main topic of the day, the highly prevalent uh, iodine deficiency in Australian um, soils and, and patients. Yeah. High prevalence of iodine deficiency. You're, you're quite right. If, if we, ha there's an odd, odd bit of the story is we can measure anything in medicine and Medicare pays for it, but measure iodine in the urinary response, any measurement of iodine gets no Medicare rebate. Isn't it, isn't it strange that our biggest, most important probable single deficiency is something that a doctor can't measure. And when doctors can't measure something, we tend to forget all about it. But yep, it's prevalent and we should be doing something about it. Chris mm. has been telling us this for years.
Professor Creswell Eastman has been telling us for years and he's getting a little bit frustrated because uh, a recent story in Australian doctor said that only around about 36% of GPs are actually aware of iodine deficiency and how much they should be recommending to pregnant women, despite in January 2010, I think it was, uh, iodine recommendation of 150 micrograms uh, being the first sort of policy change for a vitamin as a supplement for pregnant women. I think you're right. It is surprising, but I do truly think that doctors, when they can't measure something, when they can't get a test result back, mm. it tends to go off their radar. That if we've got test results, the automatic work of the doctor is, I will order the test. If you're deficient, I'll do something about it. And getting doctors to change that mindset to, look, there's a high prevalence of iodine deficiency, irrespective of testing. It's really, really safe to put that, say, 150 micrograms a day back into the person's intake just to cover that 30% of the country that won't be iodine replete. So let's go through this issue with iodine testing. Hmm. Tell me what's happening there. Well, iodine is not a metal. And so you, a doctor can test for zinc, or he can test for a whole range of things, and Medicare tends to pay it back. And what Medicare pays for tends to prevail in the kind of pathology testing business. But testing for iodine is a little bit messier. You've got to get the first sample early in the morning. The early morning sample of urine is then gives you an estimate of the iodine intake. And it's not a perfect test, but it certainly can separate those who are grossly deficient from those who've got plenty on board. And so that early morning urinary test now costs around about $70 or $80 just to do the tests. So we're now, we've reached the point where it is costlier to do the test than maybe a year of iodine supplementation. So the question then is, do you really need a test for everybody when you know a third of your patients walking in the door and probably more for a doctor's surgery because plenty of those people are sick because they're iodine and thyroid deficient? Do you really need a test or mm. should we just get on with the job? And I think Kreza's line of let's just get on with the job. It's cheap and cheerful and the amount of harm that can be done by just replenishing the iodine at around that 125, 250 micrograms, the damage done is trivial. Mm. The benefit is just huge. Yeah, and I think it, it, t this smacks of vitamin D. It's the same sort of message. It's like it's so safe at that dose yeah. that it's costing too much to test or it will, will cost too much to test, just supplement. Yeah. And I point out to the listeners that the no um, adverse effect limit is 1,100 micrograms. So that's the upper limit that we should be doing, certainly without you know, strict uh, medical supervision. I, I, the upper level is a, a bit tricky. You can go much higher than that, and most people do. When, when we have a no adverse effect level, the no adverse effect level means until you get to there, you don't even really have to think about it. Yeah. Once you go above that, there are people who could go up to the many milligrams per day to replenish gross deficiencies that have happened over time, but then the doctor or healthcare practitioner needs to remember to bring them back down to a level which is around, you know, safe levels around, say, that 125 to 250 micrograms a day. That's the long-term sustainable amount of iodine. So let's talk about some of these conundrums with iodine and, mm. and you know, toxicity, which we saw with, uh, you know, the Bonsoy contamination sure. of, a, you know, when they changed the manufacturing process. At what level of iodine do you find issues presenting with people who have a predisposition to, like, Graves' disease or right. thyroiditis? There are a small group of people, people with uh, Graves' disease, which is an inflammatory condition of the thyroid. And the thyroid is very, very twitchy in this autoimmune condition. 
if you, and I've done this myself in my practice, you can have a person who you think is just thyroid deficient, you give them a bit of a loading dose of iodine, you know, a few milligrams a day, and it sets off a thyroid storm. Mm. And their pulse rate shoots way mm. high, you know, they're 150 beats a minute, and they're trembling, and they can't sleep, and it's really obvious when you hit them. But in my practice, over 10 years, I've seen that four times. Right. So it is a rare enough condition that you don't have to focus your iodine supplementation strategy on the fear of that particular issue. If a person comes to a practitioner with the diagnosis of Graves' disease, that's a very different thing. Mm. So if you know they have Graves' disease and the simplest you know, kind of measure, what can a practitioner look at? If they've got these kind of bulging eyes where the upper eyelid looks retracted, where the, eye, the eyes actually look like they're pushing forward, then that is one of the signs of Graves' disease, that they, they actually look like the eyeballs are bulging. Mm. Orbitopathy. If, yeah, yeah. If you see that, then that's probably a poor person to start to do a loading dose of iodine. But that that's the rare exception. There are very few other exceptions. The more common what was called Hashimoto's thyroiditis or the more common forms of autoimmune thyroiditis, the problem for those people is usually iodine deficiency. And why is that? Well, as you would know, and probably all the practitioners know, most of those people with thyroiditis have got these DQ2 and DQ8 genes, the kind of genetic susceptibility to celiac, and there's a huge link between those celiac genes and thyroiditis. When the inflammation is going on in the thyroid, the less work the thyroid has to do, the better off that person is. Mm. If you make a person iodine deficient, you've got now an autoimmune damage gland struggling to produce more thyroid hormone. The brain's saying, give me more, give me more. The thyroid's working harder and harder. And I say to people, it's a little bit like having a sprained ankle and trying to go running on it. It's just a poor idea. Mm. So for the vast majority of people with autoimmune thyroiditis, the safe thing to do is to give them the iodine the gland settles down somewhat because now there's a good replenished iodine availability and there's less work for the uh, for the brain, the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the thyroid to do in total. So it's a good idea to supplement in most autoimmune thyroiditis. It's also a good idea to supplement in people who are, say, becoming about to become pregnant or yep. have got other high needs coming up. So what dose do you find or what dose range do you find in practice? works and is safe? Well, you know, having said there's no need to measure it, what do I do? I, I actually go and measure people, so I do try and pick out the people who are iodine deficient versus those who aren't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have gross dividing lines of how many micrograms per day, so I get a bit of feedback. In general, if people are excreting less than, say, 10 to 20 micrograms a day down the very, very low end of that scale, then the dosage is to replenish stores in the body. And so we go for many milligrams of dose. So that could be two, three or four milligrams per day to bring them back into function relatively quickly over a period of six, three to four weeks. For the vast majority of practitioners who don't go and do that testing and can't distinguish one from the other, the safe thing to do is go just pick that 125 to 250 micrograms a day. A little bit more in pregnancy because the mum's you know there for two and the baby's development is critically dependent upon iodine availability in mm -hmm. pregnancy. So for safety in pregnancy, you want to make sure that there is plenty available. And the safety of iodine, of course, is you pee it out. You know, if there's too much going in, I can prove this because once a person's replenished, so I've got really low iodine yep. in the urine, you give them milligrams of iodine, three weeks later they're still really low, you have not filled the sponge up yet. Yeah. If you keep on going, there comes a point where suddenly 
everything that you're putting in the mouth, 95% of it's coming out in the urine. You know that they have replenished their stores at that point and then you drop it back to that 125 or 250 and they stay on that. Are you finding that your patients are peeing out the iodine without ill effect on their TSH levels? Yeah, without any ill effect. I, I have a problem with patients who do one thing. They get on their iodine and after a few weeks they're feeling so much better that they think, wow, you know, one milligram can make me feel better and they start just doubling and doubling and they go up to higher and higher doses. Mm. Now, the strangest problem is they were feeling so much better that they're unwilling to accept that more isn't better. Mm -hmm. And we do have to be, you know, as practitioners, a really practical thing is don't go above five milligrams, you know, a day. That is, that is always going to have a suppressive effect on the thyroid gland. It's just the thyroid's flooded with iodine and it shuts itself down. And people go through a period of getting better and then if they keep on doubling the dose and they keep on taking it up, they feel worse. And so you've got to keep your eyes open for that. Practically, as a practitioner, people will do things that are silly. If they do that with vitamin C, so what? Mm. If they do that with a B vitamin, so what? Mm. But iodine just has the effect of high doses. It suppresses the thyroid and they go back to the very problem that they came for in the first place. So with regards to pregnant women, you've got the National Health and Medical Research Guidelines since January 2010 advising that all pregnant women should receive 150 micrograms of supplement of supplemental iodine. Yeah. Um, that's in addition to all food sources. Yeah. And this is to, the, uh, they basically admit that the food sources that are fortified with iodine will not take the shortfall that is experienced during the needs of pregnancy. Yeah. So, Therefore, I'm going to assume that there's quite a, a, a reasonable margin, if you like, of safety that's still going to get them, have them below that 1,100 micrograms yeah. of the no L limit or the no adverse effect limit. Yeah. Do you ever see pregnant women taking too much iodine? I do see people... I, I mean, there is a problem. There's a thing called Lugol's iodine, and Lugol's iodine is out there, and it... It is a remarkably good and inexpensive product, but it is very potent and it is really easy to overdose on that orally. And so people do, you know, take the one drop and then they go up and they go up in dosages. So when people get on something where they can take it easily in a dropper and put it in their water and have quite an overdose, then they do overdose. That's just the nature of people. If they come back, oddly, this is a value where supplements that are maybe higher cost put the natural limits on it. <laughs> so if you get really cheap iodine and it's easy to put a squirt in a, in a glass of water rather than modify the dose, then you can overdose easily. And I don't recommend that apart from the loading dose. But most supplements these days are 125, you know, 75, 125, 250 at the most. And as long as people are keeping under 500 micrograms a day, there is an enormously high safety limit. And you can make an argument that it's probably better to err on the high end, mm. not, you know, the thousands of micrograms, but the many hundreds of micrograms. It's better to err on the high end there during pregnancy rather than the low end. What about the absolute huge end? Uh, there's a, a very interesting argument that went on with Dr. Alan Gab Gabby and uh, Dr. Guy Abrahams. Um, Guy Abrahams was the proponent of extraordinarily huge iodine dosages. Mm. Uh, the, the many, many milligrams, the tens, twenties, sc scores of milligrams. Whereas Alan Gabby was saying, no, when you did the math, you actually got the wet and dry uh, weights confused. And so you're, you're multiplying hmm. the concentration of iodine by a factor of like 10. Right. Alan Gabby errs on the side of certainly medically supervised 
uh, but much lower dose than, than Guy Abraham's. Tell me what you think of, of that sort of dosage argument and what do you use practically at the, at the upper limit right. for fibrocystic breast disease, for instance, and yeah. fibromyalgia? There is a good safety margin for iodine. You do, it is water-soluble. You tend to pee it out. That's why we measure the urinary iodine. So they can both be right. You can get a person taking a 20, 30-fold overdose and still peeing the majority of that out oh. and it having no adverse effect on them. You would need to be careful with people who've got renal disease or people who've got, uh, you know, where the thyroiditis is important, where you don't want to be in unnaturally suppressing a thyroid gland. There's a high safety margin, but there is no reason to overdose. There's no value to overdosing in day-to-day life or in, in patients that come into the surgery. I think the value is go high to replenish. There is a basically thyroglobulin and storage and the thyroid can get to work and produce the thyroid hormones and link the tyrosine and the iodine and the, produce the T1, T2, T3, T4. And when it's done, the body goes out of its way to not let the rest of it interfere with that and pees it out. So in my practice, the simple answer is when people are peeing out 80 or 90% of what I'm giving them as a dosage, they don't need that 80 or 90%. They've already demonstrated that they don't need it and the wisdom of the kidneys can be relied on. Hmm. For people with kidney disease, I don't know about the answer to that, so I'm not confident. And, and I think there is this background of low-level kidney disease that we're seeing in the community. We haven't paid that much attention to the kidneys. We figure they figure themselves out. We pay attention to liver and hmm. detox elsewhere. Hmm. But the kidneys have a finite... They're a finite resource. Yeah. And so there are people who are going to have difficulties concentrating and removing things from their system. And what they show up as is raised TSH levels. They get to the slow pulse, they get the hair starting to fall out, they get the kind of look of hypothyroidism, even though you've got them on iodine. That's a really good time to go and measure the urinary levels and say, well, I might be overdosing you. So I don't, as a clinician, we don't have to have these academic arguments. The practical thing is, when they've got bugger all hiding, give them a loading dose, get them back into the ballpark of the thyroid being able to function, pay attention to any people who do rapidly go hyperthyroid, where you've maybe missed a Graves disease case every so often, but more, just as importantly, make sure that you diminish that dosage back to the 125, 250. I would say 500 micrograms should be the maximum level of day-to-day supplementation if you're going ongoing. Mm. I don't never, ever go higher than that. And I think that's probably prudent, especially in pregnant women where there has been reports of transient hypothyroidism after birth, particularly in like preemie babies when they're, you know, suddenly at parturition, suddenly having to be having to be being born. Yes. And so there's this shock, basically, as you say, a separation from the mother supply of the iodine, and they get a transient hypothyroidism. As, you, as you'd expect. I mean, if you're used to, you know, lots and lots of nutrient delivery and suddenly that's not, that's not around, the body, the baby's body has been able to waste some in brain development. There's no particular shortage there. And a, a sudden relative shortage can be really important in those first months of development. So breastfeeding is important in that uh, in that level because mum needs to keep having her iodine mm. and the breastfeeding covers some of the losses that would otherwise go on there. So what about women, uh, pregnant women, with pre-existing thyroid conditions? Yeah, it's hard for them. Uh, if there's one thing that happens with thyroid conditions, it causes relative infertility. And so and people who are severely hypothyroid or severely iodine deficiency 
are probably not as fertile and don't get pregnant as they try and get pregnant as frequently but the pregnancies are unable to be sustained so there's a level of low thyroid function which is just not easily compatible with the normal release of fsh lh estrogen progesterone the things that make for fertility once you correct that mum has a difficult problem and that is an iodine deficient mum who now becomes pregnant now has to think of two different sources two different reasons for having the iodine one is high need in pregnancy developing the baby and the other one is sustaining herself and keeping the thyroid not overloaded not underloaded and that's again i come back to easy supplementation is you know tablets or capsules or anything with 125 to 250 microgram it's just a one a day thing that mum can at least say well i've done the i've done the iodine thing i've got my thyroid and my baby's thyroid looked after for this stage of the pregnancy i do think they need to start it before pregnancy Mm. though Mm. a for fertility and, and lots of the fertility the ivf clinics are just starting to cotton on to the fact that nutrition is important for fertility. You would imagine after all these years that it would not just be the technical issue of which hormone do we deliver to you, but they are now paying attention to MTHFR genes, they are paying attention to VITD, they're paying attention to iodine, and that's a good thing. In effect, IVF clinics are having to become integrative practitioners because a whole lot of these integrative things, nutrition, is really important for Mm. fertility Mm. and health. And having healthy mums prior to the start of pregnancy is way, way better than having a mum who's technically been implanted with a um, blastic, uh, the blastocytes. Um, if you just do that and you've still got a nutritionally depleted mum, that's not going to be a good outcome of pregnancy at all. Mm-hmm. So I have a sneaking suspicion, though, that just like vitamin D was pigeonholed into only being useful for bones, and that's all, that iodine somehow isn't just useful for the thyroid gland, although that might be its prime purpose or a major purpose. Tell me more. What do you think? What's your your thoughts about iodine and its use in genetic transcription? Uh, iodine is going to prove to be more. We, you, as you're right, we have headline things for every nutrient. So it's bones for vitamin D and calcium for bones, and we focus on the disease that is most visible to us as doctors. Mm. And so there is no doubt about iodine's necessity for thyroid function. But iodine as the kind of minus one for the, to bind the cations, there are a lot of iodides and iodine requirements around the rest of the body. And as you said, you know, this is useful for gene transcription for a successful DNA repair. There's a lot of functions of iodine that we don't even bother to pay attention to. And nature is um, efficient, shall we say. It doesn't waste a molecule on one job. That's it right. doesn't waste an ion or, a, or a, a, an atom on one job. Those jobs are spread out around the body. We have to open our eyes to iodine. The improvement in people's health that they experience with iodine, the better quality of hair, we always, as a shortcut in medicine, say, oh, that must be because your thyroid's better. Yeah. But strangely, people get better before their thyroid's better. You see people with a TSH of, say, 12, 15, 20. Mm. You give them the iodine, they're feeling better. But at the retesting, even a couple of months later, their TSH still is still 15 or 20. Wow. So it wasn't the thyroid. As far as the brain's concerned, the thyroid is still not replete. It still hasn't got back up to scratch. But other processes around the body are improved. There's, there's probably going to be a much broader application of iodine in the future. And the question for us as doctors is, is that the same dosage 
or we think of it as dosage because we're talking about tablets, but is that the same intake mm. as makes for a healthy thyroid? And if you go on history, there is probably going to be a similarity of the levels that make a healthy thyroid and make a healthy body. So that's part of evolutionary biology mm-hmm. is the, mole- the molecular and the concentrations and the delivery that comes through food and the variability over the season, that these are important parts of the rhythm of the body much more generally. I'm busting for that research to play out because clinically I know that the people on the iodine are doing better in ways that can't be explained by thyroid. Whether that turns out to be better babies or not, I'm also interested in because if you're thinking about where is rapid growth, where is iodine likely to be most beneficial, during pregnancy is where it's most likely beneficial, not just for the thyroid. I think personally you can probably get as much benefit to baby's brain development in the early years of life with simple iodine as you can by sending them to the best private schools around the place, that you you actually have an investment in that baby. And a hell of a lot cheaper. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> it is. And, and I am always amazed by the parents who don't look after themselves in pregnancy, have the babies, and then farm the babies out to have their brains improved postnatally mm-hmm. when the job was never done prenatally. They were, they were not on their probiotics. They were not looking after the diet. And the idea being, as long as the baby gets through to that age where they can be farmed out to a high school that's going to make them very, very smart, these kids struggle. And they need not struggle. They can get brain development with the omega-3s and the iodine and they get a good healthy diet and being off grains early on. And you can have a kid whose health and brain development is much, much improved and they're ready for school. They actually do take in the information and the brain works properly. You mentioned earlier that your patients were getting better even though their TSH levels hadn't changed, at least yet. I've got a question though, and some, some might agree about are we testing for the correct things? Yeah, because, good question. Because that's not necessarily an indication of how well that thyroid is working at the at the target tissues, is it? No, you're absolutely right. And I was using the shorthand then of the, <laughs> the TSH. What does it tell us? It tells us what the hypothalamus tells the pituitary gland to tell the thyroid. It's mm. like a kind of Chinese whispers coming down the line. <laughs> There are plenty of hypothyroid people with an absolutely normal TSH. And weirdly, there are plenty of my patients who are clinically euthyroid, they're back to good health, and their TSH is still 12 or 15. Mm. So there is much more complexity to this than just the TSH. And I, I think that because doctors do a TSH and the only test they do is the TSH. Why? Mm. Because it's cheap. Mm. Because Medicare says don't test the other things because they're expensive. So the free T3, free T4, TSH receptor antibodies, T3, uh, reverse T3, there's a whole complex story. And the immune system is involved in regulation as well. There are thyroid antibodies, thyroid hormone antibodies that bind onto the hormone and infinitely regulate that. So we've got used to the shorthand of TSH. And it's the wrong measure for about a third of all people with thyroid disorders. We have to get into seeing, is a person metabolically active? You know, are they running into a hibernation mode? Are they running low body temperature? And if they are, we've got to be prepared to say, until proven otherwise, that's the thyroid. The brain may not be paying attention to it, but there's your problem. If the body's running at 9 volts instead of 12, and the brain's saying, no, 9 volts is fine, what do we do? And so iodine is a simple way of bringing that forward. When doctors think about it, of course, we always go to thyroid hormones, the the drugs that are used to manage the thyroid. 
But if you provide the fuel, a lot of thyroids just recover their own function. You touched on a, on a very simple test that's very often overlooked because we get caught up in the, in the types of blood tests that we can do, and that's the measurement of temperature as quite a sensitive indicator of basal metabolic rate. So tell me what you do with your patients with regarding temperature measurement first thing in the morning. I've got to say, I fell into the category of people who measured the left auxiliary uh, analog temperature. And the reason for doing that is the left side, because the heart's over the left, there's minimum opportunity for loss of temperature. If you measure it on the right arm, it's a little bit uh, colder, especially in winter. And you get an analog thermometer, mainly because digital thermometers are designed to predict high temperature. They don't measure the accurate temperature. What they do is they have a, a, um, a program inside them that says, okay, if this is how the temperature is changing, this is the temperature it's going to be. And they have to overestimate because no one wants to have their kid at home mm. if they underestimated the temperature. Yeah. So getting low temperatures is really difficult. Analog thermometer, the woman or man, women usually because there's more thyroid disease in women and mm. more of them get pregnant as well. Mm. But on waking... Uh, put it, the thermometer, analog thermometer, under the left axilla, hold it there for five full minutes, at least seven preferably, and read the temperature off. And the reason it's a useful place is there you can say there's a dividing line. A temperature below 36 degrees Celsius is something that, until proven otherwise, is going to be the thyroid and metabolic rate. If it's 36.3 or above, you can say, well, that's probably not the metabolic rate. Um, and that little area in between, you, is, you know, it's clinical judgment. But that, that provides a useful measure. And I have patients who are done properly, 34.8 and 34.9 regularly with a TSH that says everything's okay. Mm. And if their metabolic rate is brought up, they get their brain back. They get their energy back. Muscles function better. Mitochondria are utilizing energy. I have a suspicion that what goes on here that we're missing is that there are occasions where the thyroid goes low because we're entering a kind of hibernation state. I have a suspicion that why we're missing the TSH is that sometimes the body says hibernation is a better state to be in, and it in fact drops the temperature and the less harm that can be done at that time, the brain actually is controlled. The doctor says TSH is normal, therefore thyroid's normal. But what's going on is the thyroid's just entering a state of hypothermia where less harm is done. And as a clinician, we've got to think of that and say, would you be better at a higher metabolic rate? Running at nine volts might be the least worst thing you can do right now. Mm, mm. But if we take those people up gently and re- we allow them to run their temperature, then they do things like recover from infections. You can't beat an infection with a temperature of 34.9 or 35.2. Yeah. You've got to run a temperature to give your body's immune system an advantage. So that hibernation, winter-type response is something we've still got to consider and say, in your best interest, it would be better if your metabolism was back up. If you're running 12 volts instead of 9, that will, in the end, be a better position for your body to be in. So so if these patients are running temperatures of 34, 35, mm. um, I mean, that's the other way. That's kind of like the sickness syndrome, isn't it? It is. The, there are things called sick thyroid. We just don't have good concepts for it. Once you've got TSH as your ready-made marker, mm. Mm. you tend to think normal TSH, don't think anymore. And that's what I'm trying to get around. What we need is to think, if you've got low metabolic rate and the brain's not saying to the thyroid, give me more, then you may have underlying illness, which is a good reason why the body would be at that low metabolic rate. So I'm not suggesting you charge in and give thyroid hormones in those state, but you do make sure that iodine is replenished because the brain may be saying, look, the cost of using that little amount of thyroid uh, of iodine for the thyroid function is just too high 
don't bother. We'll wait until the iodine comes around again. And so our job is to give the iodine. And that's a useful thing that sometimes without changing TSH, changes body temperature and changes metabolic rate. So tell me more about your usage of iodine in fibrocystic breast disease and tell me about the, the caveats, the cautions that you've got to be aware of. Well, my history is simply that it works. I mean, the, you do get people who have got, you know, fibrocystic painful breasts who have been through all kinds of hormonal manipulation and have been through the um, uh, evening primrose oil. There's a lot of things that you can try in those circumstances. But I think it's a common observation of many doctors that the fibrocystic disease, people, women will tell you that when they went on their iodine for their thyroid, the first thing that improved was, in fact, the pain of the fibrocystic breast disease mm. and that monthly variation. Now, you can make all kinds of stories up. Yes, if the thyroid's functioning better, the, TS, uh, the TSH is lower and the FSH, LH, estrogen, progesterone, there's a better balance mm. and you produce more estrogen because now your adrenals and the ovaries the are working reverse? better. <laughs> And, and so there is a good story to it, but as a practical treatment um, option, iodine should be tried on people who've got fibrocystic breast disease just to see whether that, as a simple measure, is able to manage the fibrocystic disease. And, and I think the dose was uh, two drops BD, two drops twice daily of Lugol solution. Yeah, so it's high dose. So that's quite high dose. Yeah, <clears throat> that's high dose. And so it may be, it may be still is thought f worth thinking about, that there's something else underlying that you could do something mm. about. Mm. But it, and I'd certainly be careful about other coexisting conditions before you, sure. you know, you have to go and have to go and do the breast examination and make sure that there's no likelihood of tumours or anything around there, but that's something we do routinely anyway. Yeah. Uh, the other thing uh, I'll point out for the listeners is this is obviously in tandem with caffeine avoidance and other theobromines like coffee, chocolate. Yeah, um, all the things you love in life, just cut it out. <laughs> And uh, with the addition of vitamin E, I uh -huh. think it was uh, around about the 500 to 1,000 IU. Yeah, and vitamin, e. vitamin E does have that anti-estrogenic effect as well. So mm. certainly when you get up to 2,000 units, it's quite an obvious anti-estrogenic effect. And so when you add other nutrients, that complicates the whole issue. But mm. the observation of women with fibrocystic disease having less pain and less fibrocystic breast disease with iodine is, is a real observation. Yeah. And with the vitamin E, you know, 10, 15 years ago, of course, we didn't have these available in Australia, but now we have the tocotrienols. Yeah. So we've got those, the much, the full range of isomers of the yeah. vitamin E. Uh, as we know, vitamin E is like an apple. It's, uh, there's not one. Yeah. And it's, not, it's much nicer to have what nature used to provide. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, we used to think about 500 IU to 1000 IU of vitamin E, but tocotrienols are measured in milligrams. So I think it's around, what would be 200 to 400 milligrams? Is that what we're If you get at? the full spread of them? Yeah. That's how I understand it as well. But I, I'm not a biochemist. All we get is take the dosage down, make an equivalent, and mm. you're right, 200 milligrams is about the dose. And uh, lastly, um, there was a, a nice, very interesting paper that was uh, reviewed by Professor Creswell Eastman, um, and it's by an author called Drutal, looking at the use of selenium in thyroid orbitopathy oh, yeah. and the safety of it. Mm. Um, tell me about this because selenium was sort of this, you know, can it work, can it work? No, it can't, but then the studies were done wrong yet again. Yeah. Uh, we interviewed uh, Dr. Margaret Raymond, F forgive me, Professor Ra Margaret Raymond um, of Sussex University. And, um, you know, she, she's quite, quite hesitant to go very high with selenium but then she also elucidated that the studies were done wrong, mm. um, you know, and, and again, that depends on if the soils are very selenium deficient, which Australia's are. Yeah. 
Selenium, selenium is an odd one. Uh, it has so many uses. I mean, also the glutathione peroxidase, it's got multiple uses. But it is one of the things which is dependent, especially liver conversion of T4 to T3. You do need to have the selenium availability. And if you don't have that, you end up with a thyroid producing all of the raw materials ready for thyroid hormone production and not that final quick conversion. Yeah. And again, people do notice. In fact, sometimes when you know that the iodine is okay and the thyroid doesn't appear to be working, you don't give the iodine, you give the selenium and they revert to normal metabolic rate. The temperature comes up nice and quickly. It, again, it's nice to be able to measure free T3 and free T4. Hmm. I, I saw a patient just in the last week where the T4 was high and higher and higher and never got converted to the T3. And that's a person who almost certainly is just going to do well with the selenium. If anything, might be a bit too quick of a conversion because mm. they ramp up production and the TSH is still high saying give me more even though the T4 was very high to begin with. So giving selenium I think is a really useful thing on so many different levels. So selenium, when you know that there is no likelihood of excess and up to that you know, 200, 300 micrograms, you really don't have a problem with selenium. We used to give it in spades before. We all get a little bit tired of that kind of step back and say, oh, might be selenium is toxic. But in Australia, it's really hard to find toxicity. Mm. The chemist has to make it up wrong before mm. you actually get the toxicity of mm. selenium. Dr. Mark Donohoe, thank you once again for taking us through quite comprehensively of the safe use of iodine and also with selenium in various conditions. So not just the thyroid, but also pregnancy and fertility. Um, and lastly, of fibrocystic breast disease. Thank you so much once again. Again, it's been a pleasure. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm.